how much of a woke bay <laughs> is Simon Harris a definitive analysis? And I suppose the question that I have for you is, do you know what a woke bay is? No. No, though I think I think it was appearing so much I, I Googled it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Welcome to Girls With Goals. I'm Neve Marr and I'm delighted to welcome to studio today my guest for this week, Minister for Health, Simon Harris joins me. Simon, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. We're going to start things off as usual with our game. So it's called Six Words or Less and it's for our listeners and readers of Her.ie who may not know who you are. Surprisingly, they will know who you are. You have to describe yourself in six words or less. So in your own time, Simon. Okay. Um, I'm taking dog lover as one word, right? Because it's hyphenated. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> controversial, but I'll allow it. Go on. Uh, energetic. Busy. Driven. That's four, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, feminist. Yes. So you couldn't be on Girls with Goals without being that. That's amazing. Best word. <laughs> <laughs> and enthusiastic. Enthusiastic. There great words. Dog lover, I know that from your Instagram account, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So we are coming off the back of a pretty jubilant time here in Ireland with repealing of the Eighth Amendment, which you were very much behind and we're going to talk about that in a little while. But Mm -hmm. first, I do want to go back a bit and talk about how you got into politics in the first place. Yeah, it kind of happened by by accident for me. Um, So I ended up in the doll at 24 years of age. Um, I had no kind of family political connections so my mother or father weren't TDs are involved yeah. in political parties but but I do have a younger brother called Adam and Adam is eight years younger than me and he was born with a condition on the autistic spectrum with uh, Asperger's syndrome okay. and I suppose I was a, a kind of opinionated um, teenager living in Greystones and I was very frustrated that we were we were living in what we were told was the wealthiest country in the European Union yeah. yet there seemed to be so little support or information even um, about autism so I'd called a public meeting uh, in my hometown back when I was 16 I think so yeah, and just kind of invited, you know, is there anyone else living with this condition, living in our town? Because you feel very lonely and very isolated yeah. when you get hit with this. We didn't know much about it at all. And um, about 60 people turned up that night in a kind of community hall in Greystones. Wow. And we decided to set up a, a support group uh, called the AAA Alliance. The AAAs being autism, Asperger's and ADHD. And we started kind of supporting each other and sharing information and organising a days out for kids with autism and there was a new a new a new secondary school opening uh, nearby and we started campaigning to make sure that that secondary school would have an autism unit within it and, and kind of without even knowing it I suppose I was becoming political meeting politicians campaigning asking them to do different things and Enda Kenny was uh, the leader of a, of a very uh, reduced Fine Gael and Fine Gael was going through a very bad time mm-hmm. and he was travelling around the country uh, meeting disability groups and I remember meeting him and uh, he kind of said you know after we, we had a conversation he said you can kind of keep on giving out about the political system or politicians or you can get involved and, and try to make a difference and, and that's basically uh, how it took off for me uh, I ran for the council and and then the doll and really the rest just has been a bit of a roller coaster. It's interesting I was going to ask you I mean was there a moment that you could pinpoint getting involved so young at 15, 16 and organising these community meetings was there a moment that you can pinpoint that you said politics is definitely going to be my career but it sounds like maybe talking to Enda Kenny that may have been that yeah, moment. Yeah I mean that, 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 that was the moment I suppose that now, now kind of sums up my philosophy to life you know which is you, you can keep on moaning you can be that kind of Monday morning quarterback you can keep on giving out about how everything in the world must change or you can actually try to roll up your sleeves and say I'm going to make a difference and that conversation would end I suppose was that perhaps turning point 
Yeah, you said that you were 24 when you yes. went into the chambers first. So I was looking up some stuff and an unofficial term, but it is an unofficial term. I don't want anybody to think that I'm being disrespectful, but it's called sure. baby of the doll. That's right. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a term, I think, in a lot of parliaments around the world. So if you're the youngest TD in the doll, as I was then, I'm a very old 31 now. Um, <laughs> Watch but, it. Watch <laughs> it. But back but back then I was the youngest TD uh, in the doll. Was that, uh, was that a daunting experience for you? Like, can you remember that first morning that you walked in at 20? I mean, 24 is young, you know, to go into a political structure that's obviously, you know, steeped in history as well as mm. everything else. It must have been a really big moment. It was. And, and I remember walking down into the doll chamber um, on the first day and it just seems much steeper than it than it kind of looks on the television. So it's actually quite um, disorientating at, at, at first. But it's like anything. And, and in fairness, it's not just politics. It's like any job. If you're young in mm. the job, you have to work that 10, 20 percent harder to prove yourself at the start. Yeah. But um, I felt the people of my constituency, people I'd grown up with, people in my community had, had put their faith in me and given me a chance. And, and really, that was kind of what, what drove me on. So let's take a look at women in politics for a moment. Yeah. So, I mean, on her.ie, we, we are talking a lot about, you know, we were very much involved in the repeal movement. And yes. now we're, we're moving on to um, really kind of focus on gender gaps and, mm. and kind of wage discrepancies and things like that. I mean, there are there is an improvement in figures from last year even if we were to look at that I think there's a 40% jump in women taking seats in the doll now and we do have obviously gender quotas now at a national level which is which is fantastic for national elections um, but I mean for example if we were to look at women for election right you, you obviously would know that group so it, it kind of provides yeah. support for women who hope to enter politics they say that there are barriers to a lot of women entering politics and they say it's the five C's so they say it's down to culture childcare cash candidate selection and confidence as well. I mean, I think it's I think it's a really great thing to do to kind of maybe define those things that might hold women back. But yeah. also, that's pretty wide ranging and a little bit terrifying when you kind of put it into words as to the things that might be holding women back. Well, that's it. And, and I think you're dead right. It's really good to identify the problems yeah. and then work out how to solve them. But we also just need to make sure that we don't... Um, put them up in light so much that it would actually put anybody off because yeah. there, are, there are many successful women in, Ir- in Irish politics. I used to work for um, for Frances Fitzgerald long before I, w- I was a TD uh, and you know people like her and so many other women have made such a such a big impact on the political scene but we have made, you're right, we've, we've made progress but coming from such a low base you really can't kind of celebrate it too much because I mean we still have far too uh, far too few f- female TDs in Dáil Éireann. Um, the quotas have helped and the reason they've helped is because it's meant that political organisations all around the country have actually had to start talking to women and asking them to get involved in politics and we've seen that when those conversations have taken place more women have ran for election and where more women have been on ballot papers more women have been elected uh, to, to serve in Dáil Éireann so the quotas have worked to a degree right mm-hmm. I think we'd all like to including women be at a place where we don't need to have quotas where yeah. we just actually reach an equality uh, in relation to this issue but until that point I think it's important that we do um, we do have the quotas because it puts it up to the political system to do much better um, in this regard and that's what we've got to do. And it's a, it's a really peculiar situation because if you look at if you look at community leaders, if you look at the people who are involved in so many different things, whether it's parents associations, chambers of commerce, festival committees, tidy towns, all the various organisations, sports clubs that make our communities, make our country tick. Yeah, women are at the heart of so many of them. Absolutely. So they're already a little bit like me back as a, as a teenager in Greystones. They're already playing such an important role in terms of of leadership within their community, advocacy, campaigning. It's making that next leap. And and I. Do 
do think, you know, it's important we acknowledge the Dáil is not a family friendly place. It's not yeah. a family friendly place today. I mean, the idea that you're sitting in Dáil Éireann on a Wednesday night voting till 11 o'clock in the evening or half 11 in the evening. And, you know, you could be a TD, male or female, uh, from Donegal or Cork or Galway. I mean, the, the toll it takes on, on family life yeah. um, is very, very significant. So I think we've got to look at at, at how the Dáil operates as well. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think that's a key part of it as well. So not just getting women elected to the Dáil, but making sure when people are elected to the Dáil that it's more family friendly. And I mean, I think like you touched on a really interesting point there about when you were, you know, 15, 16 in Greystones yourself. And I suppose the question of, say, encouraging more young women to get involved in politics is crucial. And I think maybe secondary school would be a really interesting place to do that. Because I know, like, from my own experience, I was just thinking about it myself. And politics was never something. And I was actually involved in a lot of communities and and stuff like this. Like what you said, women are at the heart of so many different things. Mm -hmm. But taking the next leap, I mean, do you think it's something that we could maybe bring in more into our education system because when I think about it now politics was never something that I thought about and on reflection I think I'd be an alright politician I think you'd be very good I think I'd be alright at it yeah exactly Um. but but I've never like I don't really know how we can incorporate it a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair point. We've started, so there's now politics is, is now a leaving cert subject, which okay. I think has to be a good thing. But I get, a, I get invited into a lot of schools, uh, partially because of my age, to talk to students, both primary and secondary school. And I always play this little game with them as well. So I say, anybody here who has an interest in politics, will you put up your hand? And no, no hands go Maybe up. Maybe it's just the words. I think that's it, right? Yeah. Because then I go on to the next point. So every now and again, one person puts up their hand to be polite, right? To poor me standing at the top of the class and looking down with no hands up. Then you say, well, hang on a second. Are you interested in when you finish school, whether you'll be able to go to college? Hands go up. Are you interested in whether your parents can pay the mortgage? Hands go up. Are you interested in what we can do as a country to make sure that the dangerous policies of Donald Trump in terms of his approach to climate change and others are tackled? More hands go up. Are you interested in how we look after uh, people who find themselves in desperate refugee situations more hands go up and like, that is politics so it's all encompassing uh, it's all yeah. encompassing but mm. you see the bi- I think the problem here is people see politics particularly people of my generation and younger people in our schools they think politics is two often men in grey suits on the 6-1 news shouting and roaring at each other across a dull chamber yeah. and that's not what politics is I mean and we saw I know we'll get on to it in a minute but I think we saw in the referendum mm-hmm. when people politics is it's issues based it's yeah. about saying there's something in society that I don't like and I want to change or there's something in society that I value and I want to work on so it's not just that stereotypical view of kind of male pale and stale yeah. um, which is all too often what we see politics it's to be It's been a little Hollywood glamorised as well I mean you see the political dramas and stuff like that yeah. on, on TV and everything sure. like that like I don't know if you watch all those things but maybe growing up it was that's what it was maybe it's the word politics that kind of makes people go oh well I don't want to be a politician everybody hates yeah, politicians but then it. we'd have no dentists as well do you know what I mean <laughs> so I mean I suppose you just have to kind of think yeah. about it as like that it's issue based that's it and you've got to take it take it back to my take it back to my teenage experience you know do you want to keep giving out about something that's annoying you or do you want to try and fix it like politics like any career can have its very frustrating moments mm. um, they can have its ups and, it da- and its downs but you can make a real change if you yeah. decide not to boil the ocean but if you decide there's a couple of things that I want to make better yeah. and if you put your energy into them you can make a difference and I, th- I think uh, based on women and men that I know I think there's so many people uh, in this country who have a really positive role to play in that regard I think if we're going to talk about issues and obviously you are the Minister for Health so talking about an issue that's definitely dominating the news at the moment and definitely affecting a lot of women and we've spoken about it on the podcast here before and that is the cervical check scandal there was an article in the Irish Times there only earlier this month that's saying that the number of women affected by the scandal is likely to increase significantly Um, 
so like that, you know, we've spoken about it on the podcast. We've, we've had women who've been affected by cervical cancer in here. I would say that the women that I've interviewed and the women that I've spoken to, there's definitely a sense of fear. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're scared, do yes. you know? So, and they're scared about whether their health service has let them down. And, and also they're scared about whether it's too late to fix it. So what would you say to these women who are pretty much scared. Yeah, well, they have been let down Mm. and they've been let down by the fact that information about them was known about them by their health service and not communicated to them. Mm -hmm. So there was an issue of non-disclosure. People in the health service, including doctors, knew various uh, facts about women's health care and didn't tell women. What that should not be and cannot be conflated with, and I've spoken to women impacted by this on a very yeah. regular basis, it cannot be conflated with the benefits of a screening programme and what screening is. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is a really important part of the conversation we have to now start having. Screening is not about diagnosis. So lots there's lots of different screening programmes. They can help save lives. They can detect precancerous cells. Yeah. They're not a diagnostic tool. And I think we've got to make sure, and Dr. Scally, the man I've appointed um, to do a scoping inquiry into all of this, has reported back now with, with, with really important recommendations. He's basically saying you've got to make sure that when a woman goes in to see her doctor or her smear taker, she's given very factual, clear information. What is this screening programme about? What are its limitations? Mm. What can it do? What can it not do? And, and I think I've spoken to a lot of women, and, and I'm sure you have too, who, you know, when they get the letter back from a cervical check saying, you know, everything's OK, they had understandably somewhat presumed that, that was okay that that meant they were absolute there was no chance of getting cervical cancer yeah. obviously that's not the case so yeah. I think there's a chance now to have a national conversation about what screening is and what I'm really encouraged by and I've had so many conversations with, with Vicky Phelan and others mm-hmm. really encouraged by is that out of this really difficult situation they want something good to come out of it yeah. and I think one of the good things we can do is make sure we have a proper national conversation about what is screening we know that it's saved um, many many thousands of lives we know absolutely. that I think 50,000 uh, pre-cancer cells have been detected by our screening programme. So what we don't want to happen and we can't have is is the screening programme, I suppose, confidence in it undermined. Yeah. So we've a lot, we've a lot, a lot of work to do in this regard. Uh, but we're going to get there mm-hmm. and we're going to make sure, I, I gave a commitment to Vicky Phelan the very first day I spoke to her. I gave a commitment to her that something good was going to come out of this because that was what she wanted, she wanted to know, that after all she'd been put through, something good was going to come out of this and that's what we're going to work morning, noon and night on. That's really encouraging. I mean, as well, and we are going to move on now in a minute, but you have recently as well secured backing for new procedures to help victims of clinical negligence avoid courts. And I think that that's a really crucial point as well, because whatever about what these women have gone through and stuff, there there is things about dealing with it sensitively as well. Like I mentioned fear earlier. And so obviously this is something that was really crucial, not new. Now, it was in the programme for government a couple of years ago, um, but it's but it's something that I think and obviously you would agree is definitely going to bring a little bit of respite to these women? That's it and definitely to these women but not just not just to this issue as you rightly say. So I, I've been watching on my television screens probably all, all my life since I was old enough to watch television far too many people being dragged through the courts or forced to go to courts to actually get answers particularly in the area of catastrophic birth injuries. Mm-hmm. We've all seen far too many um, men and women it's just mums brutal, and dads emotionally and it, draining yeah. like I mean uh, what does it, I mean we end up in the same destination mm-hmm. we end up rightly providing these people with support and financial assistance why not do that quicker yeah. why not do that without having to go to court and other countries have cracked this and we have to as well so we set up this week actually a group to look at this and to report back within six months how do we have a system that's less adversarial less argumentative that just gets to the bottom of this and provides people with support quicker Brilliant. Okay, we are going to take a quick break for our Spotlight interview. Earlier in the week, my colleague Orla Condon sat down with world-renowned adventurer Pip Stewart to find out how we can all live a little bit more adventurously. Stay tuned. When we come back, we're talking about repeal and what a woke bay is.
Kip, this is your very first time in Dublin, according to Instagram, which oh. I'm presuming is true. It is, yep. And you did the Bray to Greystones walk yesterday. Oh my God, yes. So probably a much smaller adventure than what you're used to. What did you make of it? It was beautiful. Uh, the sun was out. I'm like, is Ireland always this sunny? Apparently not. It's not. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you picked the best day to do the Bray to Greystones walk. Oh, I tell you what, though, I want to come back and explore more because this place is just insanely beautiful. Like, you guys are so lucky to live here. So I, much stuff to do. You take it for granted, though, don't you? When you're here, you're always like, I must go somewhere else now and look at that on Instagram. But then you kind of look out your back window and you're like, actually, that's pretty nice out there. Oh my gosh, it's on your doorstep. Yeah. Like, get out and see things, people, because it's beautiful. I know even when I was watching your Instagram I was like oh where's that now and I was like oh it's Bray <laughs> I could go there why don't I go there so also what I noticed was your job title is Explorer yeah how the hell does that happen that's a really good question it sort of happened over a period of years I'd say um, I guess my first big adventure was cycling from Malaysia to London um, which it, you makes like let's just say that's 10,000 miles <laughs> 10,000 miles. I can't send, cycle 10 miles. That's ridiculous. Nor could I when I started, though. This was a weird thing. My partner, we used to live in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and he said to me, um, Pip, how do, you, how do you feel about cycling home? And I thought, <laughs> dude, I'm not a cyclist. I, I've barely cycled around university. Like, I'm an absolute accidental adventurer because, yeah, I thought, he, I thought he'd lost the plot, like, legitimately. We didn't do any training for it. Um, the first time I'd been on the bike was the day before I set off, which was a bad idea in hindsight. If anyone's oh listening God. thinking I want to do a, a long distance cycle journey, maybe do some training. <laughs> um, but it, it showed me that anything's possible, really, if you kind of put your mind to it. And actually, three weeks in, I'm not going to lie, I had a bit of a meltdown. I tried to break up with him. It was awful. Oh, no. Yeah, I threw my bike on the side of the road. and had not blame you. That's I had intense. a tantrum. I was, I was like, literally, you picked the wrong girl. If you think I can do this, you've got another thing coming. It was awful. I was so embarrassed. Um, and he just said to me, Pip, this is not a physical journey. This is a mental one. And as soon as I got that in my head, I was like, you know what? I can go nice and slowly, but my gosh, I'm going to get there. And I think that's just gone through the rest of my sort of so-called adventure career. Um, just try things. And it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be crossing continents. It can literally just be, you know, get out and see what's in your city or go for a walk. If you've never done the Braid to Greystones walk, go out and do yeah, that. do it. Phenomenal. So I suppose, like, that's all well and good saying it's in your head and stuff. And I suppose even when we go out for runs or walks or cycles, whatever, you kind of, you set yourself these milestones. You're like, oh, if I can get to that lamppost or if I can get to that shop, that's that many miles. But 10,000 miles, like, how do you... How do you break that down to make that seem manageable? Because I feel like 10,000 miles is a, is a distance that your mind can't process that. Yeah, I think you're bang on right with that, actually. And it was it was that overwhelming sense of this huge challenge that that three weeks in tantrum was about because I was... I was embarrassed, honestly, because I said to my friends and family, oh, I'm going to cycle halfway around the world. It's going to be fine. And then I looked at the challenge and I thought it's not fine this is this is something Crazy. way beyond what I can do and that was when I had a meltdown um but it was only when you start doing something eight hours a day you know we, we sit in an office from nine to five and we get our work done and no one ever goes oh my god that was amazing how, how have you done that for decades um and it's the same process when it comes to things like this if you do something on a day-to-day -day basis over a period of time you suddenly find that maybe you're living a little bit more adventurously or maybe you've made those health changes or diet changes that you wanted to and all these little things add up and sometimes I think it's great to have those big goals um, but also just try and 
make those little changes on a day-to-day basis and you find, wow, actually, I've achieved something I didn't think I could. Yeah. Now, you said you, you rang home to tell your family that you were cycling home from Malaysia. What was the response to that? I can't imagine that was like a normal, oh yeah, okay, we'll see you in however many weeks or however many months that'll take you. Like, Yeah, no, my poor family, my poor mum, whenever I do these adventures, she just doesn't sleep. I've just come back from the jungle in Guyana and um, she said for two and a half months she didn't sleep. So oh God. bless her socks. I'm sorry, mum, if you're listening. She's an adventurer then too. <laughs> she has to put up with this. This is crazy. Yeah, but I, I think, and this is of no comfort to my family, but I do say this lights me up beyond words like when I'm traveling when I'm meeting new people when you're connecting with the world wherever that is it can be at home as well I just yeah my heart feels happy and I sort of think if I can if I can live my life that way I'd much rather do that and I think begrudgingly they they do support that and they do get it so that's worth something I suppose that's like an intangible asset isn't it it's like you can't see it and you can't measure it but it's worth so much like in the long term Oh my gosh, yes. And the confidence and things that that gives me. And, um, you know, I think in this age of social media, so many of us, we're bombarded with these beautiful images of people living incredible lives. And you think, oh my gosh, my life's not like that. Um, And I find just living a little bit more adventurously on a day-to-day basis makes me feel, okay, you know, my life is pretty cool. And I try not to compare it to other people because you find that satisfaction in your own small way, I think. And now you're obviously selling this and it sounds glorious and amazing and incredible and all the journeys you've done and all the things you've seen. But you are also very honest about how difficult it can be. And I've seen that you've shared posts where you're where you become really overwhelmed by what you're trying to do. Like, was that a conscious decision to share that kind of content as well, just to show people that this can be really tough? Oh, my gosh, yes. Because I think the image we've had of so-called adventurers and explorers in the past or even just anyone doing something a little bit different is that you have to be tough and like I said with social media I think the definition of tough is what you make it Um, and I I really do want to show the struggles because this last journey where I was kayaking down a river in Guyana called the Essequibo I spent a lot of that really scared and I think so so much of what stops us doing things in life is that feeling of we can't we're not good enough we're scared and was that the difference this time that you thought you couldn't do it I I think on many of my journeys, I've thought I couldn't do it. Um, And I think it's a case of being honest about that and also just saying the difference is just saying I'm going to try. And I think anyone can do that. And and I really don't think I'm different or special or or hardcore in any way. You know, I'm I'm lying in the jungle at night going, oh, my God, I can hear jaguars and caiman and I'm scared. Like, it's a natural reaction. And I, I think... Yeah, we we self-limit and actually admitting that, you know, fear is a natural part, like self-doubt, self-loathing, whatever it might be, it is a natural part of being human. And it's trying to find ways to mm, pick yourself up and say, you know what, I can do this, or at least I'm going to try because I'd rather get back to the end of my life and think I tried it rather than think, oh, I wish I'd, I wish I had, yeah. but I didn't. And what is your process then? What are your ways that you, you pick yourself up out of that self-doubt? <sighs> I, think, I think it's just... The more I do, the more I realise I can do. And I think yeah. that the hardest thing is taking that first step. So if yeah. if you're thinking, oh, you know, I, I want to get off the sofa and live a bit more adventurously, go and find what's around in Dublin or go, or go and find out what's, what's in, in your region or your city um, and taking those little small steps, grab a mate and do something with them. It doesn't have to be these huge journeys. It, it literally is starting small. And 
I'm actually over in Dublin because um, AIB have launched something called the Everyday Rewards, which is amazing because you essentially just get out and do your day-to-day life as normal and you get cash back for your experiences, days out and purchases. And, it, and it's literally things like that. It's like little things that you can do with your mates, making life fun, those small fist pumps during a day. And you just think, yeah, do you know what? Life's, life's not that bad. Now you're... Your big adventures, these 10,000 miles and these 3,000 miles that you're doing all over the world, they obviously eat into a big chunk of your life. And I can imagine finishing that and finally getting over all that doubt and getting through it and getting your steps done and finally finishing and then just going home must be mm. really bizarre. Like it must be really, really <laughs> odd just going home and then being like, okay, well, what do I do now? Do I just watch Love Island and get on with my life? Or what do you do? Like, Love Island do- is great though. <laughs> No judgment here <laughs> at all. But how do you, I don't want to say integrate back into society, but like how do you yeah. normalise yourself again? After no, that? honestly, I think one of the biggest things I find when I get back is the post-trip blues. And it's, you know, I've gone from this amazing life where day to day I'm on a river and I can see Cayman and I can see Jaguar and every every day is really exciting. And then I get home and I'm like, oh, OK, uh, Netflix and, you know, just Tesco's down the corner or like whatever it is you know it, daily life can sometimes be a little uh, not mundane but just not as colourful as it yeah. used to be when you're doing these massive adventures and I think again it's all about mindset so something I like to do is on my journeys find recipes um, from people whose, whose food I've really enjoyed and try and recreate them at home or literally put on a film and, and try and do some armchair travelling or whatever it is just bring some of that learning that I've I've I love that armchair travelling what's this now putting on a film and and seeing okay this could be the inspiration for my next journey like Into the Wild or The Beach or there's so many amazing films which have like travel at their heart or any sort of adventure and you think actually why not or have a themed night you know watch a Mexican film and have Mexican food and I don't know it's it's these little things just to make um, day to day life more exciting because funny one of the things I've learned on my adventures is that it's really not the big things in life. It's it's the little things that turn out to be the big things. And yet we think we have to do these big journeys and these big chest beating adventures. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's it's being outside. It's having a picnic. It's looking at leaves. It's being with your mates. Um, and that's all so doable on a day to day basis. So, yeah, this has made me feel incredibly inadequate. Oh. I think the furthest <laughs> I've travelled in the last year might be home to Cork. But... Um, how do we so say me now if I get up in the morning mm-hmm. what do you think is like the, maybe the top three things to just bring a little bit of that exploration and adventure and excitement that breaks outside of the mould of your regular day to day like what would you say this is so easy just do this and it will just open your eyes that bit further I'd say think like a tourist so if you if you were visiting your, your town or your or city or even if you had mates around what is it that you go and do and show them and then do that because for so long, I've thought, oh, I'll go off and travel the world. And then I've only recently got to the stage where I'm like, actually, there's so much to do around where I live and I've, I've never explored it. So almost have that mentality of being a tourist in, in your own town or city and making the most of it. Because we, we've got this temptation to think, oh, it's always going to be there. And it might, but, you know, we might not be. So yeah. just seize the day, I suppose. And what what are you doing now? Like, what's the next adventure? Or do you know? Or do you just wait for that inspiration to come? Um, No, so in July, I'm going to embed, got to be careful how I say this, embed with the Marines um, in Norway. Clarification is needed, I feel. (laughs) 
feel like there's going to be a quick uh, synopsis here. Yeah, so um, we're recreating a lot of the World War II commando raids and currently there's a team of Marines who are traversing the length of Norway recreating some of these raids and I'm going to go out and join them for a week. So my fitness needs to improve in a week. I've got a week. So Um, so you're giving yourself a bit more time than the 10,000 mile trip home. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's advisable. Exactly, it'll be fine. Um, So that's that. And then I'm writing a book about my experiences in the jungle, looking at how um, modern life and traditional life have sort of collided in a sense. How do you start writing a book like that when you've done all these things I can't like chapter one like if there's surely there's not a clear map of how you write something like that that must be a big task it is but you know what every night um we went to bed very early because it gets dark quite quite quickly in the jungle and I'd write in my hammock um just a a review of the day and we had these incredible guides um called the YY who are the indigenous community that live closest to the source of the river and I'd sit there each night and say, guys, like, what was the highlight of your day? So I'd take highlights from people and then just write it up in my, in my hammock at night and sort of get those learnings from some of the most remote parts of the world. And I was just fascinating. When you're interested in something, I think it's really easy. It's to, hard to stop, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I could, Ali could literally ask you questions all day. Like, just help me make my life more exciting. <laughs> this is incredible. Like, it's such an amazing achievement. What you can boast already on such a small bio is, is crazy. That's like, it kind of makes you feel like, you know what, I'm actually not making the most of my time no but you know what just just do some research I mean even just looking on AIB's website for example and the list of retailers that you can get cash back on and stuff and you suddenly start to realise oh my gosh there's there's a lot that I can do in my own area and it's a great place to start or, or look on Instagram search for hashtags and things like that and you're like oh actually lots to do I'm telling you, if you're listening to this and you want to do one thing right now, follow this girl on Instagram and Twitter because it will give you the kick in the arse that you really need to just get out and do stuff. Pips here, thanks you so much. It was so lovely to chat to you and look, good luck with the next adventure. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Okay, so we're back with my guest this week, Minister for Health, Simon Harris. So the Eighth Amendment has been repealed. It has. Collective sigh of relief. We were very much behind that here at Her.ie. And there are a few moments that kind of stand out over the course of the campaign. Um, One of them was your primetime debate. We can't uh, shy away from that. Now, I don't know if you saw this article that we ran on site, but it went pretty viral. Um, So I'm sure you did. But it was basically, it was written by our own Jade Hayden and it came out right after the debate. And obviously you're focusing on really crucial issues, which we are going to talk about. But the headline reads... How much of a woke bay <laughs> is Simon Harris a definitive analysis? And I suppose the question that I have for you is do you know what a woke bay is? No. No, though I think I think it was appearing so much I, I Googled it uh, <laughs> at one stage, but don't ask me to define it. I'll just give you a little quick definition. So a woke bay it's an adjective. It's a boyfriend or usually male significant other who is progressive and enlightened in general. He's aware of current events and is sympathetic to plights against racism and sexism. I'm happy to be one, so... That's really good. If we were to use it in a sentence, my boyfriend suggested we go to the Women's March on January 21st. I guess you could say that I've got a woke bay. <laughs> <laughs> so, all very good things. But, I mean, obviously the debate was really focused on serious matters, yeah. and you nailed it, but you must have been aware of the aftermath. Like, your eye roll was turned into a gif. So, I mean, how did you feel about becoming essentially the Mick Jagger of the political sphere for a moment within this kind of heavy debate that was going on and weighing so heavily on the country I've 
I, I need to I need to say this bit. I've never been more nervous doing a, doing a debate really? or a television interview in in my political career. You didn't career. seem nervous. I, I think that's because so first I think the reason I was nervous was you're used to as a politician debating the issues of the day of and course. the back and forth of politics. Th- this was very different. Mm. I, I knew how many people were depending on us repealing the Eighth Amendment. Yeah. They needed us to do this, and I was really conscious both at the back and to the forefront of my mind of all of the women that I had met who had told me so many stories about the pain and suffering they'd been put through by this country as a result of the Eighth Amendment. Yeah. And I knew if, I knew those stories could never be untold. Yeah. So I, I, I just couldn't imagine what we were going to do as a country if we didn't repeal the Eighth. So next thing you're thrust into a TV studio, bright lights, studio audience, and you've got whatever, an hour or whatever it was, yeah. uh, to debate these issues, you know, a couple of days before polling so I was completely uh, I was completely nervous I suppose adrenaline probably took over and mm-hmm. um, when you're in a television studio and you're you're, you're in the kind of thick of it you, you never really have a sense of, of how it is going um, until after and um, so you didn't feel at the time that I'm nailing it no oh, wow. I, I, was, I was just very much in the zone everyone at home thought that everyone at home was like Twitter was yeah no, I, 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 I saw that after the, the previous but, debate I think there was definitely a sense that we hadn't, you know, the the repeal side hadn't necessarily, you don't want to say won or lost, but like, I think we felt like the wind had been taken out of our sails yeah. a bit with what was happening on the no side. And I think that this was at a crucial you point. You see, I, I, I said it at the time that I felt the first debate, I, I, and maybe it was just because there were so many people involved in it, mm. but I just felt there was too much hooping and hollering Definitely. in it. You know, there were too many people jeering and clapping and it was kind of like a rowdy football match. I've never seen anything like I it. Thought it was yeah. really, I thought it was just really disappointing because yeah. it is such a serious and sensitive issue regardless of people's views on it. In fairness to the primetime debate, I thought it was pretty respectful. Mm-hmm. Uh, both sides got their chance to put their point of view forward and, and I've always felt that the facts were on our side here and if we just got a chance, we live in a... I, I, I was always confident that we lived in a country where people were very compassionate and if you gave them the facts and the information and the time and space to consider it they'd vote in that way yeah. and uh, I was delighted that the primetime debate gave us that opportunity yeah. um, um, to do that I must say I, I still you know the, the day I went down to vote and everyone in the country went out to vote I mean if you had told me it was going to be repealed by such a large margin yeah. um, I, I think we were all collectively taken aback I, I met lots of people now who say they predicted it but they didn't predict it at the time I think I think a lot of people thought it would pass but it would be much closer and the fact that it's passed by such a large margin definitely makes the next steps easier now. I think, you know, in terms... Well, you, you beautifully skirted the issue there of, of your uh, feelings of being a woke fae. <laughs> but you did it in such an eloquent way that, that I'm just going to say fine. But you saw the signs. You saw the Kiss Me Simon Harris signs. I'm sure that you did. Um, so in terms of the Eighth Amendment now, obviously there was a little bit of referendum fatigue afterwards, I yeah. think. I think everybody in the country just kind of went... Yeah. And then like almost stepped away from it slightly. Yeah. But can you tell us like what are the next steps now in terms of the actual legislation? Yeah. I know that you said recently that it's going to be, um, bef- I think it's going to be around autumn time or That's something it. like that before we can see this. I think there's a few things coming through the courts exactly. and, and stuff like this. So, I mean, you know, just if people are really thinking about like what's the next step and when yeah. can we see this yeah. happen? So basically because of the, the decision of the people now, there's three things we need to do to, to turn that into a reality. We need to pass a law. Mm-hmm. We need to put in place clinical guidelines. How are the doctors going to operate this? and we need to regulate the medication uh, that had been illegal in Ireland up right. until people voted. So there are the three bodies of work we need to do. We need to get all of them done, fully done, fully completed, so services can commence on the 1st of January 2019. So for my part, which is the, the putting forward of the law, 
I'm going to go back to government uh, next month in July and we will publish probably on my department's website uh, the text of the bill that we'll introduce into the Dáil. I can't, as you say, rightly introduce it in the Dáil until the courts finish finish their business. Yeah. So I would hope that we'd get this passed through the Dáil and the Shannon kind of September, October time okay. and that we'd have these services commenced uh, by the 1st of January. So that, that's the timeline. Brilliant. So the momentum is moving. Things, it is. things, no, things are, are happening. Things are going very well. And I, and, I, and I think because the people voted in such resounding numbers, it's encouraging to hear even TDs who personally voted no saying I'm going to respect the will of the people like we weren't Alva Smith of Together Free Us rightly said like we weren't just given a mandate by the people of Ireland we were given an instruction get on and do your job now and make this country uh, more compassionate and caring for women so that's what we've got to do Fantastic Uh, you did recently speak as well at Inspire Fest and you talked about how repealing the 8th has been a momentous occasion for Ireland Mm -hmm. Um, I think in your job Simon you're the Minister for Health like historically you know a a daunting task Mm -hmm. to step into Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I would imagine Imagine especially a lot of people who listen and to the podcast and read her.ie you're doing a fantastic job. Thank so you. what are the next steps do you think for Ireland in terms of the health service? Yeah, and I'm really glad you asked me this because I think there's there's a little bit of a there's a misconception by a very small number of people including some people in Leinster House who feel look we've repealed the 8th Amendment now job done and nothing could be nothing yeah. could be further from the truth what we have to do now is we have to keep this momentum going there are still many issues uh, in Ireland where women are not treated fairly not treated equally and we need to build now on the momentum uh, of the 8th Amendment uh, campaign to address these issues so whether it's how we look after women in our maternity services whether it's the fact that we have great maternity hospitals but infrastructurally they're in bits we need to actually look at how we can now co-locate some of our maternity hospitals, build state-of-the-art facilities. We need to look at access to anomaly scans so that every woman in every part of the country can get access to anomaly scans and you don't have a bit of a geographic lottery mm. depending on where you where you live. We have to do, and this is outside of the health remit, but very I feel very passionate about it, we have to now repeal that um, misogynistic provision in the constitution that talks about a woman's place being in the home and uh, we got to get rid of that yeah that's a that's um, a weird one it's a really weird one <laughs> and we shouldn't just say asher it's only a line of text it's not it's offensive no. it's wrong it's not reflective of the modern republic we live in and we need to have a referendum on that in the autumn so there's a huge body of work to do i gave a commitment at the national women's council agm a couple of weeks ago that we're going to now have a women's health action plan so there's lots and lots of things we can do and what i would say particularly to women who got involved in this referendum campaign is please now stay involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a 90% increase in the number of women between the ages of 18 and 24 who voted in the referendum compared to the general election. It's yeah. a huge increase. Incredible. We need their energy now um, to keep on campaigning because we've, we've so much more to do. So this referendum campaign should be seen really as the beginning, I think, uh, of what I hope is, is the next phase of a women's movement in this country. Amazing. Simon Harris, thank you so much for joining us. Dog lover. <laughs> I am. Dog lover, feminist and busy, as you said there. So lots, <laughs> lots of work still to do. Tune in next week. We have a very special episode. Have you ever wanted to write a book but don't know how to start? We have the answers. I'm Neve Meyer and we will chat to you then.